This is They Create Worlds, episode 53, The History and Merger of Enix and Square. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. In the beginning, there was Enix and Square, both rival companies valiantly fighting for your RPG dollar. But not really, because really Square was more popular in the United States and Enix was more popular in Japan. And neither of them understood the American market. Why would Americans play RPGs? But then Square got their act together and made a movie. And that worked out really well for him because that allowed Enix to win that glorious battle and acquire them so that they are one. Squeenix. Okay, episode's over. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we covered that topic. No, I mean, that's, uh, you know, obviously a a simplistic overview of things. But uh, what we do want to look at today is these two super important RPG companies that basically defined the between them the Japanese RPG as we know it Square and Enix and how they competed and cooperated with each other over time and ultimately ended up becoming one company which has itself had a few ups and downs in the decade or so since they joined together back in 2003 Definitely now both of us are very big RPG fans we grew up on these two companies. We both played the original Final Fantasy, the original Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior, and tried to get our hands on as much of those games as we possibly could. Not that we could often find those uh, Dragon Warrior games. Dragon Warrior 2 and Dragon Warrior 3 were particularly difficult to find in the United States between the lack of popularity of RPGs generally and the massive worldwide chip shortage specifically that had kind of truncated some of that kind of stuff. Very true. We did go a little bit into particularly Enix with our History of RPG episode. We didn't really touch too much on Square. That's true. Both companies were computer game companies first, which I think is kind of important to their DNA and is a very important part of how they could create some of the first important console RPGs, because the console was really more of a home for arcade-style games before that, Uh, even in the United States, though you had some stuff like Adventure that had broadened that a bit. But certainly in Japan, the primary mode was definitely those kind of arcade game ports. There weren't these bigger more complex games being created. And it probably took a computer game company coming in quite simply to do that. They were founded at roughly the same time as each other, so they got their start at about the same time. Both of them were founded by individuals that really were not involved with the emerging computer scene, computer game scene, arcade game scene, video game scene, etc., but went about quickly finding people who were involved in that scene, but they took different routes to get there and they ran their companies in very different ways uh, that are still somewhat reflected in the way both Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy games are made to this day, even though they're still one, or even though they are now one company. 
So these two companies have really always been extremely influential in the development of RPGs, particularly on the Japanese side. Dragon Quest has the infamous law of you cannot release a Dragon Quest game on a weekday. (laughs) Otherwise, Japan dies. Yes, in Japan, of course, Dragon Quest is the far more popular of the two series, uh, at least on a historical basis. And it got to the point where around the time Dragon Quest 3 was released that uh, if it released on a weekday, so many kids were playing hooky from school to line up for the game that there, there was a Japanese diet law passed that those games could only release on the weekend from that point on. <laughs> it was a pretty big phenomenon over there. I know we don't have a lot of English sources for history for Enix Square, so on and so forth, but we do have some. Oh, absolutely. These are both companies that started off as computer companies that transitioned into console gaming with the development of their seminal works, Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. Who founded each of these companies, if we know that at the very least? Sure. So the older of the two companies is Enix. Enix got its start as a spinoff from really a completely different kind of venture. The founder of the company was an individual named Yasuhiro Fukushima. Fukushima-san came from a rather different background than a lot of Japanese businessmen would. There's often a lot of talk about how the Japanese are not a very entrepreneurial people, that they are very much based around these kind of big companies and fitting in with everybody else and all being salarymen and going to work and and not really being individualistic in the way that allows people to found their own businesses. That's kind of the myth of Japan. It, it's really not true. That being said, the idea of, of a Japanese individual as an entrepreneur is, is certainly something that feels a little bit unusual based on at least the typical view of, of what a Japanese businessman is like. But uh, Fukushima's parents were both very much uh, entrepreneurial. His father actually ran pachinko parlors, uh, so he was actually involved in the coin-op industry in that way just a little bit. Uh, His father also ran movie theaters, so he was kind of in the entertainment business. His mother was also a business person, which is is certainly highly unusual that that she was actually working as well. She uh, operated a restaurant. So he kind of had this entrepreneurial streak in him, I think, from his parents. And so he wanted to kind of branch out on his own and and figure out uh, his own business that he could do himself. He didn't want to follow in his parents' footsteps, but he knew he wanted to be a businessman. The very first thing he tried to do uh, upon graduation from university is that he set up uh, an event information company, a company that would advertise, you know, upcoming events. And I don't know what the format was, but in a newsletter or a brochure or something that just didn't work at all. So he went and got himself some experience after that. He went to work for an advertising agency, stopped being an entrepreneur for a while. Uh, His degree was in architecture, which had absolutely nothing to do with any of the ventures that he did later. But like I said, I think he just kind of always wanted to be this, this businessman a little bit. So after working in advertising for a while and kind of gaining some experience in the business world, he quit his job and took a year just to travel, travel throughout the U.S., travel throughout Southeast Asia, 
and I guess just kind of get a sense of the world a little bit, I suppose. I mean, I don't have any direct interviews with him, but uh, that that's certainly something that he did. When he got back from that, obviously he needed to find himself a new place to live, as people do. And he was very, very frustrated by the process. He was very frustrated that the only place to find information on housing, on available housing, was essentially the classifieds in the newspapers. He thought that that was a horribly inefficient way to do it because there was not necessarily a systematic collection of available locations. It was basically whoever decided to advertise or whatever the paper decided to emphasize. And he had to go through the bother of getting a daily newspaper and flipping through to just that one part of it and read through it. And uh, he found that very frustrating. And so he thought that there might be a better way to do this. And so he actually established a company specifically to put out a housing newsletter that would just be specifically devoted to real estate listings, more or less. He thought that there would really be a market for this. And so in 1975, he established kind of the forerunner of Enix in order to be involved in this business. That company existed under the name Idansha Boshu Service Center. Interesting name. I'm sure it probably means something in Japanese. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, but this was the, uh, the housing advertising company that he, he established, basically. In the meantime, he was continuing to explore other ventures as well. I mean, this actually did fairly well for him. Uh, at its height, he had 30,000 subscribers. He was achieving annual profits of about 70 million yen. It was doing pretty well for itself, but he did want to expand out from that. He was ambitious. He wanted to do even more than just that. And so the next kind of get-rich-quick scheme, so to speak, that he came up with was automated sushi, kind of sushi fast food, where it was cheap and quick because you didn't have to pay a sushi chef to actually go through that whole painstaking process of crafting the sushi by hand. Well, this business didn't really do that well. <laughs> Japan really likes its sushi. Yeah, I mean, they're just, it turns out there wasn't a market for that kind of thing. <laughs> he tried that in about 1979, and um, it just didn't work at all. After that, I mean, he still had his, his other business going, but after that, the next thing that he, that kind of caught his fancy was the whole emerging computer scene and the computer software business. The uh, the Japanese computer game business was very underdeveloped uh, in the late 70s and early 1980s. The computers were starting to come out there. They uh, had a small number of Apple II imports. Uh, local companies like NEC, uh, Nippon Electric Company, were putting out computers. Sharp, Casio, some of the other Japanese companies. There was this kind of hobbyist market starting to develop. Commodore was actually starting to get big in Japan uh, in the early 80s. The, the VIC-20 did very well there. But the software was very hobbyist and very cottage industry still. There really weren't that many dedicated computer game companies. And so I don't know how Fukushima kind of decided that this would be an interesting direction to go, but he did. He thought that this was a market that was going to grow and become more interesting and that he should be involved with it. In 1982, he created this company, Enix. 
It's a combination of the word ENIAC, which was the first widely known digital computer uh, created at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in 1945, between 1943 and 1945, during World War II, and the word Phoenix. Uh, I don't know if that's because it was rising from the ashes of some of his previous ventures that didn't go as well, or if he just liked the imagery of the Phoenix. I mean, I don't know the you know advanced story of the origin of this name, but that's where the name Enix comes from, the combination of ENIAC and Phoenix. Now, Fukushima is not a programmer. He's not a computer guy. He has no way of doing this himself. I mean, he can set up the company. He can run the company as a businessman. But he certainly doesn't have the ability to make any games himself. This isn't a situation with some of the early American companies like Bruderbund and Sierra, where you have a business guy and a programmer that know each other and decide to go in together. This is just Fukushima doing his own thing, and he has no expertise. This is a period of time when some of the early magazines uh, that are publishing type-in computer listings are often running programming contests in order to recruit people to send games in, or other programs, into the magazines, and then they get a prize of some kind if, if their game is considered one of the top games. So he decided that what he would do is he would hold a programming contest. He would advertise that the, the winners would get however much million yen. Remember, yen is worth a, <laughs> a lot less than the dollar is, so a million yen is nowhere near a million dollars. But he had a top prize of a million yen, and he had some lesser prizes as well, and he encouraged people to send in uh, programs. And then he would not only award the cash prize, but he would also publish them. Now, he was being a little disingenuous um, with the whole cash prize thing. Basically, the prize was an advance on royalties. He didn't describe it that way in the promotional literature because he's trying to get these kids to think that they're you know, going to make all of this money because they're going to get this prize and then their game is going to be published on top of that. Pay close attention to that fine print, kids. That's right. So in reality, it was an advance on royalties. So if, if a game didn't do that well, then that prize money was all that they were ever going to see. Though, obviously, if the game did better, then, I mean, they could make more on royalties as time went on. But it wasn't so much a prize as an advance on royalty. And the contest uh, shtick was all basically just a scheme to get young guys to submit him games that he could then publish. <laughs> Now, it turns out in the very first contest he ran, he actually did not get any entries uh, directly submitted to him. I mean, nobody knew what this Enix thing was or who this Fukushima guy was. But then he started going directly to some of these computer magazines like Login and uh, soliciting some of their programmers directly to send them software. So the, the advertisement of the programming prize, the first one didn't work very well, but then he went through the magazines and started identifying people that way and, and finally got himself some people that were submitting programs that way. Two of the very first people to submit programs were Koichi Nakamura and Yuji Hori, who will both be very, very, very important to this Dragon Quest story. Of the two, Nakamura was by far the better programmer. He was a high school student at the time and was already creating some pretty darn impressive games, arcade ports. You know, he was an arcade fanatic like so many people were. He had been submitting them to magazines like IO and Login since 1981. 
and they were very slick, very well done. He ended up being one of these grand prize winners in that first programming contest with uh, a port of a game he'd already done called Door Door. It was kind of a simple platforming game, puzzle platforming game. There, there wasn't anything remarkable about Door Door as a game, except that it was colorful and it ran smoothly. And clearly, this guy knew what he was doing. I mean, it was a nice, simple action game. It wasn't breaking any new ground, but clearly this guy knew what he was doing. And he was really the programming prodigy. Yuji Horii was a writer by trade, but he was a writer that was fascinated by computers. And he worked as an editor for Shonen Jump magazine, which was one of the biggest, most important, and widest circulated weekly manga publications in Japan. So it was kind of an anthology publication, very similar to, say, you know, some of your science fiction anthologies in the United States back in the day, like Fantastic Tales or Amazing Stories or, or what have you. It would just publish a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, you know, it was aimed at boys and They would have manga, and they would also have some articles interspersed in there as well. Yuji Horii was writing a lot of articles on computers and computer gaming in Shonen Jump because this was just something that very much fascinated him, even though that wasn't his primary area. So he also ended up getting involved in this first Enix programming contest and submitted a tennis game called Love Match Tennis, which again wasn't necessarily a huge deal, but you know, it was successful in winning the contest. I mean, it it wasn't brilliant, but it it was good enough. So that's how these guys first get involved with Enix. In addition to the cash prize, another part of the prize that they get is they get a trip to the United States. Enix sponsors a trip for them to the United States, the winners. And they decide to go to AppleFest, which is was for a very brief period of time one of the larger Apple II conventions that existed in the United States. So they go to Apple Fest in San Francisco uh, in 1983, and that is where they first behold Wizardry. Ah, yes. As we covered before, Wizardry is what infects them with the RPG virus. Right, they're absolutely fascinated by this game. And then when Hori gets home, even buys a computer that He can play Wizardry on back in Japan. I mean, truly just obsessed with this game. That's kind of the start of getting this RPG bug. But at this time, now the the Famicom has come out, and the Famicom is clearly going to be a big deal. Fukushima decides that his company should really be on Famicom. So that looks like it's going to be a big thing. There are only simple games on the Famicom, like we said. So even though Hori has recently gotten the bug for this RPG thing, they know that they really can't do an RPG on the Famicom. That's too complex a game. This is a system that is aimed at a slightly younger crowd. Wizardry is more aimed at a high school, college crowd. Famicom is aimed at children in Japan. It's it's too complicated, so they don't want to do an RPG. But they do decide to port Ori's kind of first big success over, which is the uh, Portopia Serial Murders. It's a it's an adventure game. It's a graphical adventure game, essentially. Puzzle solving and all that. A high school student has been murdered and you're trying to solve the mystery. So that felt like a good middle ground. It's a little more complex. It's not just your mindless action game ported out of the arcade or what have you, but it's not nearly as complex as a full-born RPG. And as I said, this was a 
a game that already existed. They just brought it over to the Famicom, ported it there. Well, that ends up being a pretty big hit. It's really, in some ways, the foundation of the visual novel genre, which is uniquely Japanese. I mean, there were more puzzle-solving and adventure elements in this game than your typical visual novel today. But the popularity of that game was very important in fashioning this idea of the the Japanese visual novel. Are you familiar at all with that genre? Very broadly, am I familiar with it? You have usually static images that are up there, some Mm -hmm. text that goes on, and then you may have some choice trees as to where you want to go. I believe most famously in the United States, this manifests itself as romance games where you try to (laughs) get the girl or get the guy or get the girl cat guy or something. I don't know. Don't forget the pigeons. Oh, God. <laughs> Why are there pigeons involved? Right. I, I think that is one of the more famous. The, the other somewhat famous manifestation in the United States would be Phoenix Wright, which is not so much romance oriented. But you've, you've got it exactly. It's, it's largely text and static images, maybe some very simple animation. And it's mostly choices. There may be some puzzle solving, some light puzzle solving. But it's very light puzzle solving. It's not like a Maniac Mansion or a King's Quest or an Infocom text adventure where you are trying to solve this puzzle and then this puzzle and then this puzzle and then this puzzle to win the game. It's really dialogue focused with the pictures. And that's why visual novel is distinct from adventure game. And I just thought of this, but a more advanced version of it that is more of a United States thing is any of the telltale adventure games those are by and large really just a story with the game element really there's not you can't lose with the game element it's really really hard you you have to intentionally lose like you have to shoot the zombie okay well get the mouse over there okay and click all right problem solved on to the next one so really just light puzzles, light action or something, and really we're just telling a story in this medium. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. I I think that the telltale approach is kind of bringing the visual novel in a way to a Western sensibility. So, of course, there's a greater emphasis on graphics. There's more animation going on, etc., than your what you traditionally think of as a Japanese visual novel, which is more static. But right, that's kind of taking some of those elements of the visual novel and, and bringing it back in. And so Portopia, even though, as I said, it is more an adventure game than what we would call a visual novel today, was kind of one of the foundational games in that genre. And Nakamura, through his company Chunsoft, actually becomes one of the foundational companies later on in the visual novel genre. He worked with Hori on this port of Portopia. So there's another thing that Enix laid the groundwork for that we're not going to get into huge amount of detail uh, beyond what we just did, but the visual novel is something that they helped with. So when Portopia did well, that left them with a feeling that they really could do something more complex on the Famicom and that it would sell. This is what got them thinking that they really could do an RPG. Of course, as we talked about before and has been very famously talked about before, It basically became a question of how do you take those elements that exist in a Western RPG, which they've been exposed through, through Apple Fest and through the Apple II, etc., and turn that into something that children can play. You kind of have to strip out a lot of the statistics. You have to strip out a lot of the complexity 
to create something that is more palatable to a younger audience. And so they basically combined Ultima and Wizardry. They took the tile-based approach to the overworld of Ultima and kind of the NPC interaction, where NPCs give you clues on where to go next, etc., from Ultima. They combine that with essentially the, the stats very loosely, not one for one, but kind of the statistical approach and the combat approach of wizardry, complete with having a separate window that pops up with uh, the monster. That's something wizardry does. The way that stats are presented during combat in a Dragon Quest game are very similar to the way that wizardry presents stats. Of course, the first Dragon Quest is not party-based because that was part of scaling down and making it easier for new people. But then they did go, starting with number two, with a party-based system, just as Wizardry had a party-based system. Ultima had some party stuff, too, but it's more associated as a Wizardry thing than an Ultima thing. So they kind of took these disparate elements from these two games, mashed them together, and then simplified and created Dragon Quest. Then in terms of making it more palatable for a younger audience, part of that was the streamlining we talked about. But the other aspect of that was making sure to have an art style and a creative style that would really kind of fit in with the sensibilities of a younger audience as well. And this is where Hori's connection with Shunen Jump once again becomes important because his boss at the magazine introduces him to Akira Toriyama. Who is instrumental in the look, the aesthetic, the feel of Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball. There's lots of dragons in there, and all of the things with dragons obviously have Toriyama's work. Of course. And at this time, Dragon Ball is not a huge thing yet. Obviously, today, Toriyama is by far most well-known for Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z. At the time, Dragon Ball wasn't really a thing yet, but he was already gaining notoriety through his kind of first breakout hit, which was Dr. Slump. Dr. Slump was published in Shonen Jump. So, I mean, he was a Shonen Jump contributor, and he was a rising star within that organization. And so, Ori's boss kind of facilitated this introduction between the two of them, and then they had Toriyama come in and do the the aesthetic design for the, the characters and the monsters and all of that good stuff. Which is how we got our iconic slime, for instance, which is still the the symbol of Dragon Quest today. That's certainly one of the classic Toriyama designs right there, because the slime is something that comes straight out of D&D and other, and they probably got it from, you know, the, the CRPGs they were playing. I mean, that's something that, that goes back, but the slime is usually depicted as just, you know, this amorphous puddle of goo. It might be a fun color or something, but it's basically just... It's goo. There's there's nothing to it. Or a cube or some sort of geometric shape. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you think of as you interact with it. Right. But then, you know, of course, as part of making this palatable to kids and friendly for kids, they made all of these monsters that they chose to have a little more playful. So you have this grinning blue teardrop <laughs> or a red teardrop. And- or a spotted teardrop. Well, only much later, but yes. <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, that was the slime. And I mean, they followed a, a similar aesthetic for a lot of the monsters, but certainly that's the one that's resonated the most throughout the years. And again, it was all about making it palatable to 
a younger audience. You make it a little easier and you make it a little more vibrant, a little more interesting looking. Then, uh, of course, for a game like this, you also need some music. And in this, they got very lucky to actually hit upon an established composer by the name of Koichi Sujiyama. Sujiyama is much older than the rest of this creative team. I mean, he's probably a good 20 years older than the rest of this creative team. He was already a well-established composer in Japan for television shows. A pretty well-known guy. I mean, he's not famous like a pop star, but I mean, people knew who Sujiyama was. If you're in the industry, you know who this guy is. Mm -hmm. Just so happened that even though he was an older gentleman, he had gotten very much interested in this whole uh, computer thing and this whole computer game and, and video game thing. So he had played Portopia, as many people did. It was a big hit. And he actually wrote a little fan letter to the, the Enix people saying how much he enjoyed the game. And like I said, I mean, he was a known name, not just within the industry. I mean, he was probably a B-list, maybe a C-list celebrity. I mean, you know, people knew who this was. So they get this letter. It's like, Koichi Sujiyama, is that like the Koichi Sujiyama? And they eventually find out that, yes, it is indeed that person. And so it was a no-brainer at that point to ask him to score (laughs) this game. You know, in keeping with the theme of what Dragon Quest is meant to be, he creates a pretty light, bouncy kind of score. I mean, it's got this kind of upbeat, cheerful. Some of it's a little more wistful, but it's kind of the same idea of being something bright and interesting that can hold the attention or hold the interest of, of a younger audience, just in the same way as Toriyama's drawings are, are meant to do the same thing. And, uh, of course, as, as most of our listeners probably know, that creative team of Hori, Toriyama, Sujiyama remains kind of the trinity that are, is behind all of the Dragon Quest games until this very day. Uh, other members change. Nakamura was very instrumental in the beginning. He was the programmer turning this all into reality. He did the first three games uh, as the programmer, but after that, other people did it. You know, and directors change, producers change, but there's always Hori writing the scenario and overseeing things. There's Toriyama doing the design of characters and whatnot, and there's Sujiyama doing the music. That's kind of a, the constant within the Dragon Quest world. We should stop to point out this point that these people are not Enix employees. One thing that characterizes Enix through literally its entire existence is that they don't employ the people that make the games. You may recall that uh, Fukushima found his early talent through programming contests, and he would hold others. Those were the winners of the first contest, but they would continue to hold additional contests over the years after that. They were looking for freelancers that would develop product for them on a royalty basis. Enix was a publisher. The only people in-house were the people dealing with the sales and the manufacturing and whatever else that they needed to get these games out. It was never a game development or a game design or a game programming company. That was all external. They had producers in-house, and then they had sales and support staff in-house, but not game creators. If you take a look at pretty much any Enix game out there, there's always some other studio involved. Mm-hmm. Some of the more recent Dragon Quest games that came over to the United States were done by Level 5, which mm-hmm. did a fantastic job doing Dragon Quest Eight, for example. Absolutely. It shows Level 5 presented by Enix. Mm-hmm. Enix is the company that grabs these people and says, I have this vision. 
This is what I want to accomplish. Okay, who's going to be the best company to help me achieve my dream? Exactly. And uh, another company was Armor Project that did a lot of the DS games. You know, we were just talking about Dragon Quest Eight, which was a post-merger game. This has continued even after the merger of Square and Enix, the, for lack of a better word, Enix side of the company, not that it's divided in that way, but the projects that have a tradition dating back to Enix are still done in the same way that Enix projects always have been, which is that you get an outside developer to do all of that programming and design. It's not internal to the company. The company is just the overseer and the publisher. So they come out with Dragon Quest. Mm-hmm. It's on the Famicom. Yes. To a adoring Japanese public that buys it all up and eats it alive. Nobody notices. Nobody notices at first. Wait, what? Uh, comes out in 1986, and there's not, at first, a lot of enthusiasm. I think probably because it's just too different. They didn't have to do the same thing they had to do with Nintendo Power here, did they? <laughs> Nothing like that. Nothing like that. They didn't have to give it away. But it really wasn't doing all that well when it was first released. Here again, Hori's connection to Shun and Jump came in handy, became super important, because they actually started running Dragon Quest-related material in Shun and Jump to cross-promote it. Thus you get the infamous Dragon Quest manga. Mm-hmm. Which I may or may not have one or two issues of that I can't read whatsoever. <laughs> And so they start doing this material in Shonen Jump, and Shonen Jump is reaching exactly the demographic they want to reach, and that starts getting Japanese children excited in this game, and then it starts to snowball. Then it becomes huge. Just think of it from the kids' standpoint. Oh, here's this variety manga that I can read. Oh, this Dragon Quest thing is pretty cool. I like the artwork. Wait, there's a video game with this artwork, and I can have it on my Famicom? To the video game store. And they actually helped each other. They actually fed into each other because Shonen Jump helped Dragon Quest find an audience. As Dragon Quest found more and more of an audience, that actually helped push up Shonen Jump's weekly circulation a little bit more, too. I mean, Shonen Jump was already successful, but it actually helped it become even a little more successful. They built off of each other because they, they both attacked this similar youth culture. And it was a youth culture that hadn't been acclimated to the idea of RPGs. The youth culture was very much around these action games. Because of these connections, because Yuji Horii was a writer at Shonen Jump or an editor at Shonen Jump first and a game designer second, they got to do this synergy and it just it blew up. You know, two million copies of Dragon Quest were ultimately sold. And the numbers just kept rising on the sequels. Before Dragon Quest, various companies, mostly on computer platforms, not on console, were experimenting with ways of doing an an RPG. I mean, the idea of what is an RPG in Japan was not well-defined yet. Uh, Most of them took a large degree of influence from Ultima. Some took a little influence from Wizardry. Some took influence from Tower of Druaga. Uh, We talked about all of this in our Origins of the Japanese RPG episode. But they were trying different methods of mixing and matching these elements together. Then Dragon Quest comes along, and that that is basically the formula after that. I mean, for a long time. I mean, there's been experimentation since as well, obviously. But, I mean, that really set the formula for what a Japanese RPG is. So that's 
Enix, and that's their first initial seminal work, Dragon Quest. Let's get Square up to the same point. How did Square start off before they released their seminal work around the same time, I'm presuming, of Final Fantasy? Mm-hmm. Just as Enix started off as a spinoff of this housing brochure company, so too did Square start off as a spinoff of something completely outside of the video game industry. And that thing was a power company, a utility company called Dinyusha. It once again started with somebody that had an entrepreneurial bent that was looking to expand and do something on his own that was unique to him, that wasn't just following in his father's footsteps. Dinyusha was founded by a fellow named Kunichi Miyamoto. Then it was his son, Masafumi Miyamoto, who established Square. He was looking for something he could be involved in. Fukushima bounced around between a lot of different things before he finally established Enix. Miyamoto was actually thinking about going into textiles, women's clothing manufacturing. But ultimately, when he graduated from uh, Waseda University in October 1983, like Fukushima before him, just barely before him, a year or so before him, he saw this emerging computer software industry, computer game industry, as something that could be very interesting to be a part of. And so he ended up starting a game development company in October 1983 as a subsidiary of Dinyusha, <laughs> of all things. So it's a power company that has this video game subsidiary because he's the son of the founder and he wants to do something on his own. You know, I mean, a, very, a more traditionally minded Japanese son would have joined the family business. I mean, really joined it. He was technically a part of it, but he wasn't really. Would have joined the family business and started learning from his father and working to one day succeed his father to be the head of the company. But like Fukushima, he had this kind of rogue entrepreneurial streak in him where he wanted to do his own thing. And so he founded the company that essentially that eventually became Square. So obviously Miyamoto, no relation to the very famous Shigeru Miyamoto, has the exact same problem Fukushima does. I believe that I can create a good game company. I believe I can identify what makes a game good and go with that. But I sure as heck cannot design or program a game myself. So he takes a slightly different approach than Fukushima did. And it's a very clever approach. There are kind of two ways that some of the very first Japanese programmers of games, game programmers, got kind of involved. One was through the type-ins, which we already talked about. They would just, uh, they'd had their own computers to submit those programs. Another thing that was very common was for some of these young guys, and this was usually more college-age students, I think, than high school-age students in this case. What these young guys would do that couldn't necessarily afford their own computer is they would go to a local department store that was selling computers and it maybe had some demonstration models on display. And they would go there and they would code on those computers. They would, you know, spend an hour or whatever frantically doing as much as they could before somebody decided to kick them off or whatever. 
and learn how to program that way. That's how Satoru Iwata started programming way back in the day, the uh, eventual president of Nintendo. You know, he was a programmer through and through, and he started out very early by programming (laughs) in stores. (laughs) Kind of odd to think of that. I want to code so badly, I'm willing to sneak into a company's store, take their demonstration machine, and then hog it for a little bit with my little disc and put it in there and go, code, 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 code. What are you doing over there, kid? Get out of here. Go, scat. (laughs) Exactly. And so this was something that Miyamoto uh, presumably noticed was going on. I don't know if I don't know if if he noticed that specifically or not, but he decided to recruit programmers essentially in in the same way. He opened a salon, a PC salon, a computer salon, essentially in uh, in the city of Yokohama, Japanese port city, not too far from Tokyo. And he would rent out time on, he would have about, he had a a few dozen PCs in the salon and he would rent out time on them. It was, it was essentially an internet cafe before there was such a thing as an internet cafe. That was not the business that he wanted to be in. He didn't want to be the founder of the first internet cafe. Not that there was internet back then, but he figured that this would be a way that he could find programmers because some of these bright programmers, the Iwatas of the world, not that Iwata was one of his guys, but the Iwatas of the world needed a place where they could scratch their programming itch because they couldn't uh, afford their own computer. And so his PC salon gave them that opportunity, and that's how he found his first individuals. The most important of the, of the very early individuals he discovered was uh, a guy named Hisashi Suzuki, who had been actually working for the company Koei, which is another one of the very, very early Japanese computer game companies. They're most well-known these days for their Dynasty Warriors series. Back in our NES days, they were probably most well-known, if anyone in the West knew them at all, for their ridiculously complex strategy games like Nobunaga's Ambition and Genghis Khan, which were, I mean, I didn't own them. We, we didn't play them. But I mean, they were ridiculously complicated strategy games on an NES. I don't know how they managed to do that. I mean, a lot of it's just databases and lookup tables, but still, it's pretty darn impressive the complexity that they got into an NES strategy game. Yeah, just think of how much space they had to work with, and they're trying to get all of this strategy in their AI and massive lookup tables and databases. Mm-hmm. So Suzuki had a little bit of experience. He wasn't the most talented of programmers, but he was a programmer. He had a little experience, and he joined... Uh, Over time, it became clear that his real strength was in administrative skills and whatnot. So he started becoming more involved on the business side of the company and will, in fact, eventually becomes the president of Square many years later. But he was kind of the first programmer that Miyamoto discovered. And then they started taking out ads in recruitment magazines after that. And it was through all of this that they found... uh, two university students named Hiromichi Tanaka and Hironobu Sakaguchi. These two individuals, uh, particularly Sakaguchi, but also Tanaka, uh, had absolutely, uh, at university, they were at Yokohama National University, so they were local to Yokohama, which is where uh, Miyamoto and, and what became Square were as well, become absolutely addicted to the Apple II. Sakaguchi had had scraped up money or whatever and had an Apple II and 
just loved it, loved playing on it, loved programming it. He was just fascinated by it. And Tanaka was a fellow student of his, or not a student of his, but a fellow student with him that was similarly fascinated by all of this stuff. And in particular, these two individuals were absolutely fascinated by wizardry. Sakaguchi fell in love with wizardry. Uh, It's very interesting, and we may have touched on this in our Japanese RPG episode. It was so long ago, I can't remember for sure. But wizardry took on a life of its own in Japan. There are crazy. There is an anime uh, in Japan. There are wizardry games that are unique to Japan, where Japanese companies took it upon themselves to create wizardry games that that weren't (laughs) official Surtech games. So, you know, we have eight wizardry games, nine wizardry games. There's a ninth. We have nine wizardry games in the U.S. uh, put out by Surtech. There are several more than that in Japan that were (laughs) put out by people who are enthusiasts. Wizardry was just a a phenomenon over there, just really connected uh, for some reason. Ultima did too, but a lot of this early stuff was also driven by wizardry. Both of them loved these kind of games. Both of them were addicted to this Apple II programming scene. So they joined, uh, they ended up applying for and joining Square kind of part-time. They were part-time employees at this point to make games. So that's how we get uh, Sakaguchi, of course, the father of the Final Fantasy series, in at Square. But in this case, they are employees. The big distinction between Square and Enix is that Square has employees. Square hires people to make games. They're Development studios studios are internal. I mean, they might also do a little publishing of other people's stuff, but the stuff that they build themselves that has that square label on it is square stuff. <laughs> Sakaguchi has always he's always been a bit of a film buff. Loves Star Wars, Final Fantasy. Uh, I want to say two is in a lot of ways essentially Star Wars. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> not, I mean, not word, not shot for shot, but I mean, there's, you know, there's empires and rebels and old mentor character dying. And we're talking Japanese Final <laughs> Fantasy II, not U.S. Final Fantasy II. Right. Of course, very famously, starting uh, in some of the later games, every single Final Fantasy has a, a Biggs and a Wedge mm-hmm. that make cameos. And uh, Star Wars aficionados will know that those were two of Luke's wingmen in A New Hope in the, in the first Star Wars movie on, on the Death Star run. Obviously, Wedge has a lot more history than that than in the extended universe, but none of that existed at the time that Sakaguchi was getting into all of this. So, you know, he he picked those names out of Star Wars. I mean, he's he's huge into film and he likes the idea of he wants to be a storyteller, but he wants to be an interactive storyteller. He likes this movie stuff. He likes wizardry. He likes this computer stuff. and, And he's very much into that kind of thing. But he also he's big on presentation. If there's one thing that that is always uh, set Square games apart from Enix games, I shouldn't say always. Certainly Dragon Quest VIII had amazing presentation, for instance. But in the early days, if there's one thing that set them apart is that Dragon Quest games were not nearly so concerned with their graphical or audiovisual presentation, I think it's fair to say, as, as the Final Fantasy people were. Which isn't to say that they made ugly games, because they didn't. But it really wasn't a place where they were putting their heart and soul. I think, you know, Hori was a writer. So Hori was much more concerned with the scenario and the text and the way the characters developed. And it's not like they were complex plots. I mean, it's if there's one complaint that people tend to level against Dragon Quest is that it's 
town, dungeon, town, dungeon, town, dungeon, demon lord, done. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's <laughs> but but in terms of kind of developing interesting flavor text when you talk to NPCs or having NPCs have little stories of their own that play out over the course of the game, kind of the little touches like that. And that's what really attracts, at least for me, the appeal of Dragon Quest is, yes, I know it's some guy, girl, whatever, starts their quest and eventually had to take out the Demon Lord. I know this is going to happen. This is a given. However, I don't care. It's about the journey, not the destination. I know I'm going to take out the Demon Lord. I don't care. I want to care about taking out the Demon Lord. This is why I particularly adore Dragon Quest V, because that's the first one that really made me connect with the characters in a visceral way. I mentioned it before, and I'll probably mention it again. Nothing like an entire family going, you know, Demon Lord, you screwed with our family one too many times. We're going to have family outing to take you down. (laughs) Exactly. So as a writer, that was more where Hori's concern always was. Sakaguchi is a programmer and a film buff. And so it kind of stands to reason that he would be far more interested in the technical presentation and in the kind of cinematic elements. Which includes story as well, but I mean, it's not so much the writing or the individual beats of the writing, it's kind of this overall slick cinematic presentation is what really appeals to to Sakaguchi, I think. And as with any generalizations like this, we're oversimplifying some, but it's kind of a useful starting point to explain why, why a Dragon Quest game is so very different from a Final Fantasy game, even though in the early days of the series, mechanically speaking, they were were very similar. And look at most Final Fantasies. They do have sort of a movie framework to them. Most famously with Final Fantasy VII, the beginning is just, all right, you're here, you're doing this raid on a enemy base, you're going to blow up this reactor here, we're going to sneak in there and do this. That's very something action-y that you do at the beginning of a movie in order to really draw the audience in. You can see that previously with Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy II US, where it starts off with you're doing this raid to get crystals from the enemy, quote unquote, and you're leading as the head of the Red Wings, bombing this place and stealing this crystal, and off you go, and then the story begins. Mm-hmm. Final Fantasy VI, you're raiding a town. You're trying to get that Esper. Got to get in there. It's you, Biggs, and Wedge. And you're going to do this. Well, Biggs and Wedge got killed, but you're still alive, so continue on. Mm -hmm. It's very cinematic in that sense. Many Final Fantasies start with a action, pseudo-action intro. Yeah, which, of course, is also very Star Wars. I mean, he's a film buff generally, but I mean, he's a a huge Star Wars fan. And you can, there is so much of Star Wars in kind of the basic framework of, of Final Fantasy's plotting. And sometimes even more than just the basic framework in a game like Final Fantasy II, which is not a ripoff of Star Wars. I mean, it's not that close, but you can see where he got his ideas for a lot of that game from, uh, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with. From the very beginning, he's interested in doing kind of technically impressive games. Uh, One of the first games he does is a computer game called Cruise Chaser Blasty. It's one of the very first games that I think uh, comes out as Square, because after after they release a few things, 
1986, the company, I think the company was just called Dinyu. I mean, the, the parent company was Dinyu Shaw. And I think the, I believe the computer game element of that was just called like Dinyu Company or something because it was a, a subdivision of Dinyu Shaw. In 1986, it spins out fully. It's done well enough that it spins out and becomes Square. I don't know the origin of the name Square, like I do the origin of the name Enix, but becomes Squaresoft. Uh, I don't know if it has to do with squares and pixels or, I mean, you know, who knows. Uh, Comes Squaresoft. uh, Sakaguchi comes on full time, becomes director of kind of creative development. And, you know, they get down to some serious business. And kind of the first game that they do after that all happens is this is a game called Cruise Chaser Blasty, which is kind of RPG-ish. It's a mecha game. There's mecha customization and, and turn-based battles, and it's pretty RPG-ish. I'm not sure it's all the way there, but, I mean, you can already see his his interest in that. It's very impressive graphically, the way these mecha are displayed on the screen. They, he finds uh, some really good programmers to make that happen, because he's very interested in this, this technical side of things. It is also the first game that has music from this guy that was down at the, uh, the local record shop who they'd gone down there and visited with and discovered that he was, you know, really interested in being a musician named uh, Nobuo Uematsu. That was how he kind of got involved. I mean, he was already a musician. He was already tinkering around with that stuff. He worked at a music rental shop and the Square people discovered him there. They're like, hey, would you like to make some music for our games? You're a musician. And he was like, sure. You know, you have on, on the Enix side, you have Sujiyama, like, uh, you know, a, a B-list or C-list celebrity already well-established who comes in and, and provides the Dragon Quest music. Then Square, very much in, in its style of just uh, finding people wherever they can find them, whether that means opening a PC salon or putting just ads in generic recruitment magazines or what have you. You know, they, they just walk into a store and there's this guy and it's like, oh, you're a musician. Let's make some music together. It's like, okay. And that's how you get one of the finest composers in in the history of video games uh, involved, uh, Nobuo Uematsu. The final important component in forging this Final Fantasy team is actually not a Japanese person at all, but an Iranian until recently living in America named Nasir Gabelli. We talked about Nasir. We talked about him when we were talking about the Apple II and how graphics were done on the Apple II because he was one of the first guys to figure out how to do page flipping, uh, the graphical technique on the Apple II, where you're switching black and back and forth between two things in memory in order to have better graphics. Absolute genius programmer. He co-founded Sirius Software with a guy named Jerry Jewell. Uh, we talked about that a little bit already. He was an exile from Iran. I mean, he had come to the United States to study computer science, and then the Iranian Revolution happened, and he wasn't allowed to come back, essentially. So he settled in the U.S. and was doing these incredible Apple II games. Then he decided to branch out on his own. He founded Nasir Gabelli Software. Kind of got chewed up in the crash, and uh, my understanding is that he also went through a divorce, and kind of a lot of the money that he made in his serious days kind of went out the window in a divorce settlement. So he was looking for something else to do. His own company had failed. He needed to get back into things. It was actually Doug Carlston of Broderboon. He had never worked for Broderboon, but in the early days of the Apple II community, kind of all of these Apple II companies knew each other and socialized with each other. It was a far more open, less competitive atmosphere. And so they knew each other. 
Nasir was kind of looking for a new start and something new to do. And Doug Carlston had contacts in Japan because Broderbund did a lot of business with Japanese companies uh, in terms of Apple II software. So he kind of helped them get introduced around in Japan. And see, Nasir was a legendary programmer. I mean, he's not really remembered today through a combination of things, one of which is that the company that he the companies that he founded personally, Sirius Software and Nasir Gabelli Software, failed. He's also very shy. He doesn't do interviews. John Romero, the John Romero, apparently interviewed him at an Apple programmer reunion back in the late 90s actually convinced him to come and interviewed him because Romero idolized Nasir. And so apparently there's that. I mean, it hasn't been released, but apparently that's one time he actually agreed to sit down and talk, but he doesn't give interviews. He's very shy. I don't know why, but I mean, he is. Uh, So he doesn't promote himself, which is part of why he's not remembered. And his software companies failed and then he vanished in Japan. I mean, he was a legend. All of the Apple II programmers looked up to him. John Romero looked up to him. Richard Garriott looked up to him. I mean, people looked up to him because he was a programming god. He could do things with an Apple II that nobody thought was possible. So Sakaguchi knew who Nasir Gabelli was because Sakaguchi was an Apple II guy, an Apple II guy in Japan. He's isolated from a lot of what's going on in the U.S. Apple II scene, but he is an Apple II guy. And so and Nasir is a huge deal. So he knows when Sakaguchi learns that Nazir is in Japan and that he's looking for <laughs> for a job, you know, you better believe he scoops him up immediately. And Nasir goes back to doing what Nasir does, which is programming his system of choice far better than anyone else can. At this point, Square has made the same decision that Enix has made. The Famicom's here. The Famicom's huge. We'd be stupid not to get on it. They start doing Famicom games. Nasir is the programmer on two of their first games, which are uh, 3D World Runner and Rad Racer. Both of these games feature credibly advanced for the time kind of through pseudo 3D graphics. They're both kind of forward scrolling kind of games. Uh, Rad Racer is obviously a racing game. 3D World Runner is more of an action game. But just the, the smoothly forward scrolling routines used in those two games are just fantastic compared to what else is coming out on a on a Famicom slash NES in that time period. Obviously, we'll we'll throw these up in the, the show notes. Maybe not as impressive to look at today with our, you know, 30 years more of experience with video gaming. But I mean, at the time, I mean, just fantastic from a technical perspective. Just keep in mind, a look of any other game of the era, look at other NES games and compare that to that. And just at that level, you can be amazed. Exactly. You've got a great team in place here, and they've released some very interesting games. Uh, Square's doing okay. They're not doing brilliant, but they're doing okay. At this point, Dragon Quest has come out, and Sakaguchi wants to better that. Sakaguchi wants to take on Dragon Quest. I mean, that's specifically what he sets out to do. So he tells Miyamoto. Miyamoto had a lot of faith in Sakaguchi. Miyamoto did not interfere on a day-to-day kind of basis. But, I mean, he has final approval because he is the CEO of the company. He's in charge of Square. He goes to uh, Mimoto and says, I'd like to make an RPG. Mimoto's basically like, oh, is, 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 that a, is that a good genre? Is that a cool kind of game? And Sakuchi's like, yeah, sure is. And Mimoto's like, all right, then. Go ahead and do that. Obviously, they take a very different approach to it. I mean, Hori just kind of wanted to 
take these ultimate wizardry elements and then make them palatable to a younger audience. I mean, that was kind of the thing. Sakaguchi really thought about the the setting and, and the world building a little more. He liked this idea of the elements and representing the earth through the elements, which kind of crystallized <laughs> into the uh, concept of the crystals and the warriors of light and uh, the four fiends of the elements and all of these things. Which were very much staples in the genre to this day, to a greater or lesser extent. Mm-hmm. A lot of the kind of setting, the equipment, the monsters and everything, was really influenced by D&D because several of the main people that worked on Final Fantasy were big, big D&D people. It got even too close in some places. Uh, there's one monster that had to be changed from the Japanese release to the U.S. release because it pretty much looked exactly like a uh, a Beholder. A Beholder, unlike some of these others, I mean, orcs exist for D&D or whatever, but, you know, the Beholder was basically a creation of D&D, so they actually had, like, the trademark <laughs> on that. So <laughs> their Beholder was really, uh, really looked way too much like the D&D Beholder, and you'll notice there's there's one, their monster that they call the Wizard. It's called a Wizard in the game, but if you look at it, it's definitely a tentacle face. It's an illithid. And uh, they're a Sahagin. They even call them Sahagin, <laughs> which, uh, you know, maybe the D&D people weren't aware of because that that's, again, another, you know, D&D creation. But I mean, they drew a lot of influence from D&D because unlike a lot of these Japanese people, they actually they actually played D&D. So you see that element. Uh, of course, they had to get their own manga artist because Toriyama was doing Dragon Quest. So if they're beating Dragon Quest, they need to have their guy. And so they go to Yoshitaka Amano. Now, some people are not exactly clear on this. Amano never did any in-game art on a Final Fantasy title ever. Um, you know, Toriyama, I mean, you know, Toriyama's concept of a slime, Toriyama's concept of a dragon, these actually appear in the finished product of Dragon Quest. That's not what Amano did. What Amano did was did concept art. And he also did promotional art and he would do like the main title, you know, of the way Final Fantasy spelled. There's always the logo is what I'm looking for. The logo that appears. He does that kind of art. He never does any art that actually appears directly in the game. You know, they contracted him basically to kind of help kind of create a feel, you know, kind of a, a set a tone for, for what they were doing. He was not actually the pixel artist. Uh, there was a woman that was the the pixel artist, and, and Amano didn't do any of that. But he helped kind of set the stage for kind of this more melancholy kind of setting. I mean, the, the, the Final Fantasy setting, if you stop to think about it, is a fairly bleak setting. I'm talking about just the first game now. I'm not talking about overall. Because you've got all these places that are in crisis. You have evidence of greater technology from past civilizations that's fallen into ruin like the sky castle or like the airship that you raise out of the desert, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's definitely a, a very much a, a world of faded glory. There's, it's not this kind of light, bouncy, happy medieval realm that Dragon Quest is. And of course, Uematsu is a very different kind of composer. Sujiyama is a classical composer that likes very bouncy kind of music, very light and, even his more melancholy stuff still has a certain lightness and bounciness to it. Whereas Uematsu likes heavy metal, he's a metal musician, he likes kind of darker kind of music. And so that kind of plays into the difference in tone as well. Not that he can't do a bright, happy song when he wants to, he does. But 
there's a, a different undercurrent. Final Fantasy feels more serious and more mature almost than than a Dragon Quest game, at least in this this very early time period. There's a lot of talk about that name, Final Fantasy. Like, how did it come about? There are there are multiple stories, and they seem to mostly be false. The one story is that if the game had performed poorly, Square was going to go out of business. That story seems to be completely 100% entirely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, apocryphal. Not true in any way. This was not their bet the company game. In fact, they had two teams working, and the other team was huge, and the Final Fantasy team was just a teeny tiny team because he was... Uh, the management, Miyamoto, was willing to let him do this game and he had faith in him to do this game, but it was not the company's first priority. It was not the game that they were pouring all of their effort into. While Square had some games, they did some stuff on the Famicom disk system that didn't end up doing very well, so there was, you know, there was some stuff that hadn't gone the way they would have liked, but they weren't a step away from, from bankruptcy. They weren't about to go out of business any day. So that story is completely apocryphal. There's another story that I think Sakaguchi is kind of sort of backed up at times and is kind of sort of not backed up at other times, that he saw it as his final shot. Like, if, if this game doesn't do really well, I'm going to stop game development, go back to university, finish up my degree, go get a life. That's the story that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. There may be some truth to that story. Because I think Sakaguchi has said things that indicate that there's some truth to that in the past, though it's not a completely confirmed story. So I would say that that's maybe partially true, or maybe there's some truth, but, you know, maybe not. Another thing that he said is, uh, one thing is, it wasn't even the, the first name. It wasn't the first name for the product, which is the reason why some of those stories are even more suspect. They wanted something alliterative. They wanted something alliterative because they thought it would abbreviate nicely. So they were looking for pairings, and fantasy is kind of obvious. It's, it's in a fantasy world. It's a fantasy setting. It's all of that. And they may have even been in, uh, influenced by D&D in this. I don't know. I'm just saying, since, uh, since D&D went with the same thing, Gary Gygax specifically named it, uh, you know, was playing around with all sorts, you know, like swords and sorcery and Dungeons and Dragons. He was looking for a double consonant. It could be that they were influenced by that as well, but I don't know. That's speculation. But they wanted the double consonant, and they came up with fighting fantasy. Fantasy's obvious, as I said, because it's a fantasy world. Fighting, uh, well, you know, there's a lot of fighting going on. So, fighting fantasy. Well, it turns out, uh, we, we talked in our IDOS episode about uh, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston, the other Steve Jackson, and their Games Workshop company, and how Ian Livingston's big uh, claim to fame is his series of RPG books called Fighting Fantasy. Mm-hmm. So names taken. Fighting Fantasy already exists by this point. So they needed a new first F. And so they went with final. Was he in part influenced by some decision that he might leave game design? I mean, maybe. But it certainly wasn't the overwhelming thought on his mind because it wasn't the original name of the product. Could just be that they liked the way, you know, they had Fighting Fantasy and they needed a different word and they just liked the way final paired with fantasy. You know, and it gives them the FF that they want. It, it may just be as simple as that. There may be no grand reason for it. It could be that they all, and this is speculation again, I don't have this, but uh, it could be again that they liked the idea of final as, 
you know, this is the game that's going to beat Dragon Quest. This is going to be the last word in role-playing games. You know, this is going to be the final word in fantasy or something. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it could be as simple as that. Uh, so, I mean, the stories are out there and the stories may be true, but the stories may not be true. It's one of these things that's kind of become more, more myth than fact. And it was definitely designed to take on Dragon Quest and be Spirit Dragon Quest. It is not an accident that the game starts with you going and rescuing a princess from an evil character and returning the princess to the castle and being proclaimed a hero. And only then, when you cross the bridge to the next landmass, that the opening credits pop up and you have this big opening credits scene with this music and everything. Because that was their way of saying, we are not just some go rescue the princess game and be a hero game. We're looking at you, Dragon Quest. <laughs> We're something more. Uh-huh. I mean, that was, that was very deliberate that they did that. Obviously, the game was not as big a hit. Final Fantasy never approached Dragon Quest in popularity in Japan. Neither of them were doing much in the rest of the world at this point in time. Just as a quick aside, there's also the jib in Elf Town of Here Lies Lodo or Erdrick, depending on your translation. I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that was put in by the English translation team. I do not believe that that is in the original Japanese. Ah. Yes, that dig was in there as well, but I think, I think that that crept in during translation. Clever localization people. So yeah, it wasn't as big in Japan and nothing was big in the United States in this period. And it wasn't through lack of trying. Minoru Arakawa at Nintendo of America really liked, I mean, he wasn't a gamer, but he really liked the idea of the Japanese role-playing game. He saw how huge they were in Japan, and he really wanted to establish those games in the United States. He really did. So at this point, Square and Enix, I mean, they're doing well, especially Enix in in Japan, but they don't have the clout to open an American office. They don't, they're not going to do their own publishing worldwide. So Nintendo actually publishes both Dragon Warrior they have to change it from Dragon Quest because TSR has a Dragon Quest game, and so there's a trademark conflict. They published both Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy in the U.S. It's actually published by Nintendo. Dragon Quest got a big strategy guide booklet that shipped inside of an issue of Nintendo Power. Final Fantasy got a huge, it got a three-issue spread in Nintendo Power. There were a couple other games that got two-issue spreads where they talked about where they had a feature on the same game twice in a row. Weren't anything else that I know of that had three issues in a row all focused on one game as a, as a feature article. And they had a big contest as well where winners got fabulous prizes. So, I mean, they pushed both of those games like the Dickens, and they did not sell. Dragon Warrior, they end up very famously doing a a deal where if you renewed your Nintendo Power subscription, you got a free copy, uh, which is how I got Dragon Warrior. I imagine, I've talked to Gail Tilden, uh, who was the editor of Nintendo Power, and she could not remember the details, but I speculate that that wasn't so much a promotion as it was, oh shoot, Dragon Warrior didn't sell and we manufactured way too many copies, what do we do with them now? (laughs) We need to... Free up some inventory space. Mm-hmm. I think that's a sign of what a failure it was in the U.S. But, I mean, Minoru Arakawa really wanted RPGs to be successful. And they just weren't. That was just not something that 
in, uh, that interested the average American 6 to 12-year-old. And if you were a more sophisticated audience uh, in the U.S., you had more sophisticated computer RPGs that you could do. So the RPG crowd in the United States was playing Ultima and Wizardry and Might and Magic. They weren't playing these piddly little console games. And the kids just weren't interested. So, I mean, they, they never did well. Except for these kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. Always exceptions. We weren't the cool kids. Enix, I mean, Enix kept releasing their games in the U.S. for a while. They released two, three, four on the NES. They were going to release uh, six, but then Enix closed down in the U.S. But, you know, they, they never made a, a huge effort. Square really tried. Square tried to get the American market interested in RPGs, and they just could not do it. They created a specific kind of easy RPG for the U.S. market because they thought, and I don't know why, they thought that the problem was the games were too complex. And so they decided that they needed a kind of a gateway drug to get Americans involved in RPGs. And so they created Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which was very much an easy mode kind of RPG with a lot of elements stripped out. Uh, You know, it was a mildly entertaining game, had great music. It did. But, I mean, it was not an RPG. And we basically got that in the U.S. instead of Final Fantasy V, which was a very complex game because it had a job system. <laughs> mm-hmm. It would have been way more fun. Yes, but no FF5 for you. Aww. At least not back then. But back then I had Enix games like Illusion of Gaia and Seventh Saga, which I had to restart a few times because of issues. Yeah, if you're trying to get people interested in RPGs... Um, you don't give them Seventh Saga. No, and it's interesting. You could tell that they were hoping that the art style would appeal to Western gamers because they made a big point in their promotional material in the West of emphasizing how big the characters were, that these weren't cutesy little anime drawings of characters, that these were big, manly characters. There's a robot and an alien and... An elf. An elf woman. A dwarf. An elf woman who's ridiculously weak, unless, of course, she's the one you have to fight for the rune, and then suddenly she's really, like, burning you. But that's... We're not bitter. We're bitter. Anyhow. So, I mean, I think that was really an attempt, but, of course, the game was way too hard and way too grindy to introduce... Oh, God. Seventh Saga. (laughs) I beat it. Yep. I don't know how I beat it. Well, I do know how I beat it. I'm a closeted, home-sitting person who didn't do things on his weekend. It took me two tries, because I got so far with the character that I liked, namely the robot guy, I got to a point where it was just his abilities were lacking, this other stuff was lacking, and then my only way of winning the game and actually surviving, i.e. having access to the runes, gets taken away from you way far deep in the game and if you become reliant on that it becomes a problem later on Mm -hmm. so i had to restart the game and i selected a character after a little bit of reading and experimentation and a partner that would complement each other specifically for that later game camille and olvar yes (laughs) i.e the human and the dwarf (laughs) And they both had spells and stuff that would have the same effect as the runes, i.e. up your defense, up your attack. You really needed to use those buffs in that game. Yeah. 
Otherwise, you, you'd go down, go on and go forth. And I was able to finally beat that game after some pretty epic struggles. Yes. But that game is just, oh, way, way too hard if, if you're trying to get new people involved. Oh, yeah. But Final no. Fantasy Mystic Quest was way too easy. I mean, that didn't work either. And then after Secret of Mana did okay, I mean, again, it's not doing great in the U.S., they tried again. Square actually opened a North American development studio in Redmond, Washington. They hired a team of Americans to create a Secret of Mana-ish game for the Western market specifically, and that became Secret of Evermore. Which is a fantastic game, in my opinion. It was a beautiful game, wonderful story, beautiful scenery. I swear they did the same thing they did in Donkey Kong, where they did those (laughs) pre-rendered graphics things and put them in there. The story in it was very unique, and I loved the system with alchemy for magic and everything else. It was... I really, really enjoyed that game. Sure, but... In the broader scheme of things, it satisfied nobody. Because, again, if you weren't already interested in RPGs, that game wasn't going to be the hook that got you interested in RPGs. And if you were already interested in RPGs, you were mostly just pissed off it wasn't Secret of Mana 2. And a lot of people thought, I mean, obviously, without widespread internet news sites back then, there was not nearly the same communication about what was going on in the video game world Uh, as there is today, a lot of people were under the mistaken impression that Secret of Evermore was commissioned instead of commissioning a translation of Secret of Mana 2. So this myth persisted that stupid Secret of Evermore, because it stopped us from getting Secret of Mana 2, and that's, that's not actually true. But that was the perception. So if you liked Secret of Mana, you were disappointed. And if you didn't like RPGs, you weren't convinced. And Evermore just, I mean, it flopped. I mean, it was just, it was a complete flop. I'm glad you liked it. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but it was a flop. But it had Cecil in it from Final Fantasy 2. And he gave you a discount if you remember him. Yes. Yes, he does. But no. Aw. So, Square was trying. Enix was sticking it out, but wasn't really trying. And then Enix finally did close down. They were in the process of getting Seven Saga 2 and Dragon Quest 6 ready for the West, and they just, they gave up. They, they closed down their American office, and they said, no more. They gave us Evo and Illusion of Gaia, though. Yes, which, uh, you know, again, were games they published. You know, they weren't really in-house working on those. I mean, they didn't have in-house programmers, but I mean, they weren't really even in-house, like, Dragon Quest productions. But yeah, they, they released them, but then they got out. Of course, they also published... Uh, Another game that you really like, uh, again, made by an outside company, but ActRaiser. Yes. That was uh, one of the launch titles uh, that they published. Yep. Definitely another fun game of mine. Yep. Something about being God and then directing the people. Yes. Which uh, says nothing at all about your psychology. I might be slightly psychotic. I don't know. People look like ants up here. That's because they are ants. Ooh, I can, you know, <laughs> if I did this earthquake and destroy everyone's building, they can do level three building and then I get more power. We just have the death of thousands upon the world, but that's okay because I can just do the little lightning bolt thing again and create two more. Yes. <laughs> A truly benevolent deity. You know, that's kind of how things persist uh, until, of course, Final Fantasy VII happens. I mean, Final Fantasy VII is the breakthrough in the West, and it's it's because of the graphical presentation. I mean, when it comes down to it, 
that is what was more important to the Western gamer than some of those other elements of mechanics and whatnot. And so even though Final Fantasy VII mechanically is not really that far removed from the RPGs in the 16-bit era, that graphical presentation and that story kind of propelled it over the top. It also did help that this was the period of time that anime and manga were first penetrating the West in a very real way. That was something that used to be very, very, very niche and you could only find it in these hole-in-the-wall strange stores in back alleys kind of deal. And this was a period of time when that was just starting to become mainstream. And so it wasn't just that it was pretty graphics and that's what turned people's heads. It was also that a new generation of American children was coming up that was more in tune with that Japanese culture. And then to have something that looked so much like a, a living anime at least in the cutscenes, where when the characters had hands, you know, just kind of pulled them in in a way that that would not have been possible previously. And not to mention the fact that this really ties into that whole Final Fantasy is a movie experience. Mm-hmm. The entire intro to Final Fantasy VII is very grandiose, very big. You have this pan in on the city, this music that begins to build up. And then come to a crescendo with this big logo on it. And it starts zooming in. You see all this other stuff going on. And then, pow, you're in an action sequence. You got to go forth and destroy that Mako reactor. Exactly. There's a few things that I think make these later Final Fantasies, you know, quite interesting. By Final Fantasy VI, I mean, a lot of this stuff started in Final Fantasy VI. By the time you get there... You have large development teams, and there's a lot more kind of collaboration on developing the scenario. Dragon Quest is very much Yuji Horii. I mean, he's the one that develops the scenario. So part of the reason why certain aspects of Dragon Quest games are very samey, and they are, I enjoy them, but they're definitely samey, is because you've got his hand directing it. But by these later Final Fantasy games... You basically have the whole team throwing out ideas, and then there is a head of scenario, a person in charge of scenario, who's then charged with taking all of these ideas and forming them into a coherent whole. But that's how you kind of get kind of this diversity. That's why you can have a Final Fantasy game where you suddenly have an opera in the middle of it, or you have a Final Fantasy game where the fate of the world hinges on a slap fight that takes place on top of a giant cannon. Look it up. (laughs) You know, Sakaguchi is overseeing everything, but he's taken a step back and other people are kind of charged with with building it. And a lot of them are very much film buffs too. Yoshinori Kitase, who kind of becomes the main director of some of the later games, is very focused there. And of course, Tetsuya Nomura keeps taking on a bigger and bigger role. And his kind of anime-style, spiky-haired characters resonate more than the cute pixel art of the past. He doesn't do the deformed character style. Even on Final Fantasy VII, when they can't quite do real humans yet, and nobody has hands, it's still not that deformed style. The characters are still proportional. They're just missing body parts. You know, it's changing. It's becoming something different because there are more and more people involved like that. And... You know, they weren't sure whether they were going 3D uh, at first. 
But Sakaguchi was visiting uh, a company that was working with this very advanced kind of AI computer. And he met a programmer there named Kazuyuki Hashimoto. He discovered that Hashimoto was doing all of this amazing graphical stuff at, at this company. And so he hired him in to Square and then had Hashimoto go out and hire people in in order to make that side of the company work. And that's kind of how they were able to do a much smoother transition than some of the other smaller companies in Japan is that they went outside the industry to find graphical people. And Square's a company that was always willing to go outside to find talent from the very beginning when they hired Sakaguchi. You know, they were always kind of going outside and they repeated that process on Final Fantasy. They hired a lot of outside people and I'm talking the original Final Fantasy. And now they're doing it again in Final Fantasy VII. They get this big hit and they get this graphical impressiveness because they're willing to go outside of the traditional area and bring in these graphical people and have them do the graphical side while the game design people do the game design side. So this is uh, a company unlike Enix, which is doing a lot of subcontracting. Square is bringing in all of this talent. So Final Fantasy VII is huge. It's huge worldwide. And it actually sells more in the United States than it does in Japan. It sells millions in Japan, too, but it sells more in the United States. And this is really the point where it really ferments itself that Final Fantasy is for the Western audience. Right. And Dragon Quest is for Japan. Pop quiz. Best-selling PlayStation, original PlayStation. Best-selling PS1 game in Japan. What is it? In Japan. Just Japan. Just Japan. Best-selling game on the PlayStation 1 in Japan. I want to say a Dragon Quest game. Dragon Quest Seven. That's right. You tell that to an American that really doesn't know, or a, or a Brit or a European that, that doesn't know how big Dragon Quest is in Japan, that would absolutely floor them. Yeah, Dragon Quest Seven did not do well in the States. I loved it when it came over here. It, was, it came over as Dragon Warrior Seven. I enjoyed playing it. We even had friends who mocked the poor thing for... <laughs> looking terrible or whatever and like it's not about the pretty graphic it's yeah. about the story and the gameplay which is what attracts me to it mm-hmm. and it had graphics and setup that was just sort of pseudo 3d really sort of like if you took a super nintendo graphics and then slapped it inside of a 3d engine right it sold over four million copies which was the best result by a game in Japan. Final Fantasy VII topped out somewhere in the three millions. I don't know exactly where. Dragon Quest was the only game on the PlayStation that sold over four million copies. And keep in mind that with Dragon Quest VII, that is at the very, very tail end of the PlayStation life cycle. I believe the PlayStation 2 was already out when that game got released. And, uh, you know, it, it was a massive undertaking, which is why, I mean... Not much went into the uh, to the graphics <laughs> and the sound. I mean, you know, it, it was a primitive game for that period in the PlayStation's life cycle, audiovisually. Story-wise, mechanic, mm-hmm. all the crazy stuff, the sheer volume of stuff in it. The script took up like an entire bookshelf, like an entire printed bookshelf. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it was massive, absolutely massive. But, you know... It came out in the West. It was the first time that a uh, Dragon Quest game, Dragon Warrior game, had come out in the West since 4 on the NES. came out, and it sank. I mean, and it got terrible reviews. It's like, what's up with these 8-bit sounds? 
I mean, Dragon Quest is a game that very much plays on nostalgia. So in Japan, keeping some of those 8-bit sounds like on the menu screens or whatever is is very uh, nostalgic and is very nice. But in the United States, it's just like, what's an 8-bit sound doing on my 32-bit system? Mm-hmm. But Enix was still huge in Japan. Enix, you know, sold four plus million copies of this game. They were huge. Square was bigger than it had ever been, but it was still not as big big a deal in Japan as Enix was, though obviously this is the point where it becomes a very big deal in the West with Final Fantasy VII. So we talked about how Sakaguchi is very impressed by technology, and he's very impressed by film. After Final Fantasy VII, he goes off to realize his ambition to actually do a computer-generated film. He thinks the technology is to the point that he can do this. So Square establishes a new studio in Hawaii that is specifically set up to be a movie studio for Sakaguchi to do his big CG movie. And this is where we get everyone's favorite movie, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. And quite frankly, it probably would have been a little better received. It still has lots of problems, but it would probably be better received if, it, if they had not stuck that Final Fantasy name on it. Almost definitely. I thought that as a Final Fantasy movie, it was bad. As a generic sci-fi movie, it was passable, but okay. Yeah, I mean, not brilliant, but, but passable. Final Fantasy The Spirits Within is a disaster. It is an absolute bomb. And it was expensive because it was using really, really, really cutting-edge CG. I mean, you know, compare Spirits Within to the Pixar movies that were coming out at about the same time. And graphically, as it was advanced. It blows them away, quite frankly. I mean, it was way up there, but it was an albatross on the company. It just, it lost them so much money. Of course, it also happened that this is going on during a console transition. Console transitions are always rough because you're trying to get a handle on the new hardware while the old hardware is starting to really diminish in returns. You know, they're working on Final Fantasy X, which is going to be their first PlayStation 2 Final Fantasy game. And development is dragging on, and development's falling behind. It's getting delayed. They're caught in the product transition. They're caught in the failure of the movie. And they may have been okay with just if just one of those things were going on, but they couldn't really weather both of those things, a console transition and a major film flop happening at the same time. It's a disaster. The Hawaii studios close. Sakaguchi ends up leaving the company. Uh, Suzuki, we mentioned Suzuki at the top of the uh, podcast here. He is, this is the period of time when he's the president. Miyamoto's still the chairman. Miyamoto's still there. But uh, Suzuki is the president. Uh, Suzuki is let go. He, he steps down over this whole thing. They replace him with uh, the CFO of the company, a banker named Yoichi Wada. Yoichi Wada is kind of an interesting character because he is a banker. He's a businessman. He's not a game guy. He was a game fan back in his day. I mean, he played Space Invaders in the arcade, as people did then. He's kind of enamored with this stuff. And he came in saying that I think he basically promised that he had the, the fiscal sense to write the finances, but also the reverence for the game industry that would allow him to continue square in a in a creative direction as well so they they bring in yoichi wada to be the new ceo and it's his job to kind of figure out 
how to write the ship here. Throughout his entire tenure, he was very much about broadening the reach of Square and making complementary acquisitions that would benefit the company and get the company into areas that they weren't already in. So, I mean, he's a banker. He's a wheeler and dealer. He understands that kind of thing. And, I mean, the company's finances are not in that great a shape uh, at this juncture. Meanwhile, you have Enix, which is doing all right in Japan, but they have had no success penetrating the West. They would like to be able to do that. In the early 2000s, it's becoming clear that by this time that the Japanese market is in decline. Uh, It kind of started declining all the way back in 97, 98, somewhere in there. And a company like Enix certainly recognizes that they are not going to be able to rely solely on that Japanese audience anymore for AAA game development. They need to look to the West, and they just, they don't have any capability there. Well, Square, with Final Fantasy VII, has just very, very much established themselves in the West. And I mean, eight does well in the West as well. Nine's a little bit more depressed because they went back to kind of the classic style. It was their swan song for the classic way of doing things, so it didn't sell as well in the West. But seven and eight sold well in the West. Final Fantasy X went through some difficulty in development, but when it did come out, I mean, it did very well in the West. The Square style of RPG was clearly resonating with that audience. So Enix took note of that, and Enix took a look at the fact that, that Square was a weakened company that would probably be open to some kind of combination. So they did. In 2003, Square and Enix merge, but it's actually Enix buying Square. I mean, Enix is the acquiring company, is the surviving company that is transformed into Square Enix. And Square is the company that disappears, that's superseded by this, this new company, because Enix was the, the bigger partner. In the West, it would be easy to see, especially since the Square comes first in the name, it'd be very easy to see that as Square, this big role-playing behemoth buying out its competitor Enix, just because Enix is nobody in the United States. That is definitely uh, definitely not the way of it. Well, think of it in Japan, the first name in any name that's given is usually the surname, not the given name. Well, and and there's also, you know, I'm sure they liked the imagery of the double E. I think that's part of it as well, because that figures very prominently in their logo. You know, you have square and then the E in square and then you have Enix, the E in Enix. I think they I think that's part of it, too, is they like that double E. But Enix bought square. Exactly. The Enix people were very impressed with WADA. They thought that WADA had a good vision for the joint companies going forward. I wouldn't be surprised, and I don't know this, but this is just speculation again. I wouldn't be surprised if that's because he had a certain Western outlook. WADA was preaching greater engagement with the West long before most Japanese game company CEOs were. He was ahead of the curve on that. He was absolutely right, too. In order to continue to be a relevant AAA game developer, you had to somehow appeal to a Western audience. Now, it's a whole other topic. Most of the Japanese companies, when they tried appealing to a Western audience, ended up getting it horribly, horribly wrong. The method in which they tried to appeal was flawed. But the idea that they had to in order to grow as businesses was correct. So uh, since Enix needed more of a Western outlook, I wouldn't be surprised if that is part of what impressed the Enix people with WADA. So WADA actually remains CEO of the combined company. It's mostly Enix people that stay in positions of power. Fukushima, 
who at this point is the chairman of Enix. He's no longer the president or CEO, but he's still the chairman. He becomes the chairman of Square Enix, the combined company. The president of Enix, Keiji Honda, becomes the vice president of the company, kind of the number two guy beneath Wada. So like the guy immediately above Wada and the guy immediately below Wada are both Enix people. Other top level square management are not maintained. I'm not sure Miyamoto might have remained a, a significant shareholder in the company, in the combined company, but he didn't take any kind of title in the new company. The company's main office was Enix's main office. I mean, they moved into the Enix offices. Regardless of who bought whom, when you're looking for who the dominant partner is, you see whose people end up in most of the management positions. You see whose corporate office ends up being the office everyone moves into. These are the kind of things you look for. And even the WADA remain the CEO from the square side. The majority of the high-level officers were Enix people. The corporate headquarters was the Enix office. Enix shareholders got 55% of the company versus Square shareholders getting 45% of the company. So Enix shareholders were dominant in the stock. You know, this was Enix very, very taking much, over Square. <laughs> yes. No ways about it. Enix acquired Square. Absolutely. And so that's basically, uh, you know, then what we have today. I mean, there's there's been other stuff in the, in the Squeenix, as I like to call them, uh, story since then. Uh, Wada's no longer there, uh, for instance. He expanded the company more. I mean, he bought Taito in 2005. Um, not so much for their arcade business, though obviously the arcades were something that Squeenix was not in, so that gave them a, a different segment of the market. But Taito had been developing a robust mobile business in Japan. And so they really bought Taito more for the mobile side of things because Wada, like many Japanese executives, recognized that Japan was very much going mobile and Squeenix needed to be more heavily invested in mobile. And Taito was kind of their way into that. They bought IDOS, which, of course, we talked about in our IDOS episode, because, again, they're trying to get more of that Western appeal and more of that Western focus. So rather than try to rejigger some of their Japanese properties for the West, after all, Final Fantasy is already popular in the West, they went out and bought a troubled publisher that was already a Western company and then absorbed their IP. They had development problems like so many Japanese companies. They hit a wall with HD. They didn't. We talked about this before, too. They didn't have the the tools, the pipeline, the employee structure to handle HD development. It does seem that Wada was very much enamored with his developers. I mean, that's what it looks like. We don't have a lot of inside info here. And so he was letting his developers kind of feel their way through what they wanted to do. And so teams grew in size, budgets grew in size, and games just weren't getting done. Final Fantasy 13, delay, 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 delay. Final Fantasy 15, delay, 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 delay. Final Fantasy versus... 13. Well, I mean, Final Fantasy Versus 13 is the game that became Final Fantasy 15. So that was in development so long, it became a completely different game, quite literally. Final Fantasy 14, of course, famously a disaster upon launch, now very successful. So in 2013, kind of all of these issues came to a head and the company reported a huge loss. And so Wada stepped down. And so that was kind of the last kind of legacy of of Square, (laughs) 
because he had kind of continued as, as the CEO and he was doing all of this stuff and pushing all this fancy stuff and it just didn't work out. They brought in someone that they thought would be more fiscally disciplined and would tell the developers to just get games shipped. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, Final Fantasy 15 finally came out and did well. I mean, you can talk about how unfinished or unpolished it was, or was this as successful in storytelling as it should have been or whatnot, but fiscally speaking, it was successful. They say Kingdom Hearts 3 is finally coming out next year. Believe it when I see it, but they say (laughs) it. But it seems like they may be getting that product development side back under control again. If they do, if they can figure out that balance between doing big AAA, impressive AAA product and getting it out on time, then Square Enix should continue to be a, a vibrant company for years to come. But it is definitely, you know, contrast with Konami, which we talked about last week, it is definitely a company that is still trying to remain a big AAA console company, even though they've heavily invested in mobile, because that's where the Japanese market is going. They want to stay in that AAA console space. So they are really one of the big torchbearers now for not just traditional Japanese RPG development, but for traditional Japanese AAA development in general. And they still make Dragon Quest games. Dragon Quest Eight and Nine came over to the States. Dragon Quest Ten is an MMO, which doesn't really appeal to a Western audience, I would say, though I would certainly give it a shot. (laughs) We may or may not see Dragon Quest Eleven over here in the States, but it's released in Japan. Well, we we should. We should. Because they're still releasing. I mean, they released Dragon Quest Builders. They're releasing the Dragon Quest Heroes games. So they're releasing the spinoff. So I bet they'll release that as well. Yep. They still make them. Yuji Hori is still in charge of them. You know, Sakaguchi's long gone, but uh, in Dragon Quest, Yuji Hori's still there. And uh, those games, like I said, they're still subcontracted out. So uh, even though Square and Enix are one company now, some of the DNA and the methodology of, of the individual companies still manifest in, in ways like that. Particularly with whatever the franchise is that is being developed. So Dragon Quest, you're, outsourcing the development final fantasy it's primarily in-house mm-hmm. absolutely well alex i think that pretty much covers everything that we want to as far as enix and square it's cold in here you know is it now it is well at least i'm cold i don't know about you you're always cold i am always cold the seasons have been changing it's getting colder outside fall is upon us and you know i think there's gonna be a blizzard coming Oh, oh dear. I think that this cold blizzard from the north will come forth and assail our ears in the next episode. So what you're saying is that what we really need to be doing is talking about that ridiculously successful developer that goes by the name Blizzard Entertainment. Yes. Yes, I do. I mean, this episode got us all the way up to the present day, sort of, though we were mostly living in the 80s on it. But we've been doing a lot of older stuff recently, and we want to kind of get back to more recent things like our 1990s and our early 2000s. And we've talked about a couple of the big companies in that period already. We talked about id, we talked about IDOS, we talked about Epic, and certainly uh, a company that looms just as large as any of those is Blizzard Entertainment, which... Started out as a contract developer for Interplay way back in the day and then morphed into this ungodly uh, empire of domination in, in various parts of the video gaming scene. And we probably won't bring them all the way up to the present day. I don't like talking about 
really recent events too much just because there isn't enough time to gain any perspective on them, but can at least take a walk through the 90s and maybe up through the, the development of World of Warcraft and see how they started building this uh, massive empire they have now. And they get all of our money. Pretty much. There's very few of their games I've never purchased. Well, anyway, we will delve into the cold, cold blizzard next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Shoot us an email at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.